So for those of you who have a large lunch gathering, should you need everybody just to be quiet, that will work for you today. It should work for us every day. And it's true. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we ask that what we're going to look at this morning from your word, that you would make it true. Not that it's not true, but that it would become us, that we would believe it, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would show us why in your providence, God, you've planned for us to be in 1 Corinthians 13 on this Easter Sunday. Lord, I know that in this room there are people that are facing manifold realities related to the love that we're going to study in the, in the scriptures this morning. Thankful for love from another. Hurting because we haven't loved others very well. Maybe being wounded by someone who's not loving well. We understand that what we're going to look at today, it hurts so bad when it's partial, when it's only part way. And we ask you to help us to understand by the resurrection power of, of Jesus in the gospel why this is something you would say to us is true and it's for us. Help us to believe it would it become us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have prayed for you this week, um, and I just mentioned it in a prayer. I know that we come from a very, various experiences of earthly love. There's broken stories of love in this room. There's lofty experiences of love in this room. Love in its deepest form often comes through trial and pain and conflict and necessary reconciliation and trusting in the gospel and restoration and then growth and new depth. And what I'm excited about this morning as we look at 1 Corinthians 13 is that there is no way to understand this, to preach it, to believe it apart from the resurrection. Not at all. If I've ever preached it before, I confess I've missed it if I didn't make the resurrection the center of it. What we're about to look at in 1 Corinthians 13 is a resurrection text by God's design for us. So let me ask you to stand with me if you would, and we're going to read the whole chapter together. I'm going to scoop back because there's more of you over here. Hear God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But I have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now... Faith, hope, and love abide, 
these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Love is the only thing. Love is the only, is what Paul is saying. Reminds me of a dialogue Jesus had in Matthew 22 with religious leaders. There was a lawyer who stepped up to the front in this dialogue, and he asked Jesus a question, and the question was to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. So love is the great commandment. Love is the essence of the law. Love is the essence of the people of God, of the Son of God. Love is the only. And the way that Paul shows this is in the first three verses, he has three if, get it right, if but then statements. If this is true, but this is not, then this is reality. He's trying to isolate love and its necessity no matter the situation. And so he says, if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels but I have not love, then I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. The tongue of men and of angels. I mean, we, we certainly could think of the gift of tongues, think of the way the Spirit evidenced itself, himself, as, as Pentecost happened, and it was obvious that God was still at work in the world. People would hear declaration of the glory of God in tongues that they didn't know. Others were there to interpret heavenly language, you could say, but also this would be said of tongue of men and of angels. So we're talking about the most intelligent and cogent and beautiful and persuasive, smooth speech of a human being. If I have even that, but I don't have love, Paul says, I'm nothing but noise. I'm just noise. A gong or a cymbal, I think, is a rather offensive thing in this verse. Certainly, it's just a percussive instrument, very loud, but incapable of its own melody or harmony in and of itself. But secondarily, multiple commentators would say that Paul may be making an inference to pagan ritual worship in this, where it'd be, it'd be sounding all around Corinth. I remember being in New Delhi, India, and there were times I would hear loud shouts from uh, the mosque down the way, letting everybody know it's time for prayer. Similar to that in Corinth, you hear loud banging, clanging. The people are being conjured together to invoke a pagan god to drive the evil spirits away. This may be a very offensive reference that Paul has here. Here's his point. No matter the eloquence of the speaker, no matter the wisdom of the words of the speaker, no matter the skill, no matter the argumentation, no matter if the person is absolutely right, without love, you are just noise, offensive noise. It's rather convicting to anyone whom God has given the gift of persuasive speech or calling. Certainly pastoral ministry is a ministry of speaking. Some of you may not be given positions of speaking publicly, but you're just a very direct personality and you just say it like it is. It doesn't matter if it's A or B. The point is without love, it's just noise, even if you're right. He goes on, if I, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith, all faith to remove mountains, but I have not love, then I am nothing. 
This is amazing what he does in verse 2. He actually starts to list some of the most significant gifts he has just given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Prophecy is the highest gift. We'll see that again next chapter. To speak God's word to God's people. The, the, the gift of faith by which one could move mountains. We've already seen that faith is referenced as a gift. Or we saw that wisdom is a gift. Or knowledge is a gift. To, to know the depths of what God is doing. To sift through a situation. Understand the source and what wisdom is. And Paul says, if you have all of that, but you have no love, you are nothing. He says, I am nothing. This is powerful language. Here's one commentator's take on it. Lovelessness evacuates a Christian's significance before God so that the person becomes a non-entity, just a cipher. Love evacuates significance before God. Never mind that you think you're something or never mind that your identity struggles, that you want to be known as something. If you do not have love, no matter what you do to evidence to the world that you are someone and you can do something, Paul says, I am nothing. Thirdly, if I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but I have not love, then I gain nothing. Think with me, of the rich young ruler, that story in Matthew 19, who, who happened upon Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, keep the commandments. He says, well, which ones? Jesus says, well, all of them. You know, do not commit adultery, do not steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, be kind to your neighbor, you know. To which the rich young ruler says, I've done those things. And Jesus says, oh, okay. If you would be perfect, then give away all your possessions to the poor. And he went away sorrowful. It was too much for him. Think with me. Jesus says this is the, this is the top shelf for that man. For Mr. Righteous, this is the top shelf. Go all the way and you will evidence to me that you have the kind of selflessness required to be in the kingdom of heaven. This is a great thing. Let's not stop with possessions. In fact, Paul goes further. How about giving up your body to be burned? What about one who goes that far? Well, doesn't that help us maybe think of Hebrews chapter 11, the, 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 the annals of faith there? And we come to chapter 11, verse 35, and it says some people were tortured, some were killed, so, some were sawn in half. They refused to accept release because they wanted to rise again to a better day. Is there anything greater than giving up your body for what you believe in? So Paul lists these highest goods and then he says, but if they are done without love, then you gain nothing before God. Even the best things can be done out of guilt. They can be done to get noticed. They can be done out of resentment to spite someone who's not doing what you are doing. If you do any of those things without love, you gain nothing. So here's how the text starts. Love is the only. Without love, you are either merely noise or you're nothing. And two N words in verse one to three. Noise or nothing. Love is the only. Notice as we look at this, and I, I need to say this, I'll say it maybe once again later. As you listen to these texts, don't think about how others have just been noisy toward you or been nothing to you because they didn't love you very well. Don't go there. This text is about us 
reflecting the love of God the Father and giving love to others. Think about your own love. So what is this love if it's the only thing? What is it? Because we have to be very careful not to try to describe it wrongly because we could list some of the things that are already mentioned in verses 1 to 3 and the scriptures say, if you don't have love, that's not it. So you can't say love is self-sacrifice, for example, because you can do self-sacrifice without love according to verses 1 through 3. So what is it? Well, Thomas Merton, in his book, Seven Story Mountain, he described the chaplain of his boarding school when he was a boy. And the chaplain preached from 1 Corinthians 13, and the chaplain, here's what he said. He says, well, his exegesis was a bit strange. His interpretation of the word love or charity was that it simply stood for all that we mean when we call a chap a gentleman. You know, good sportsmanship, cricket, wearing the right kind of clothes, using the proper utensil. Merton goes on, the apostles would have been rather surprised at the concept of Christ being scourged and beaten, cursed and crowned with thorns, subjected to contempt, and finally nailed to the cross in order that we might all become gentlemen. So what is this love? If it's not just be nice to your neighbor, if it's not just be a, be a good chap, what is this love? Well, in the Greek, it's the word agape. And it's a very common word. We know that the word agape is the primary word used in the New Testament, but understand that before the New Testament, this word was not commonly in use. So one way to think of it is this, the love of God in the gospel, the love of God in the kingdom of Jesus, it required a new word or new meaning to a word that was rarely used. Verse four to seven give us a definition of this love. It's a love that proceeds from the nature of the lover, not from the feelings or the merit of the person that receives the love. Try to expound a little bit on verses 4 to 7, but it's pretty simple. It's pretty clear. To say too much about it is to risk contaminating it, isn't it? Notice that love is a verb in this text. Verses 4 to 7, all the verbs are continuous action Greek verbs. In other words, the love being described here, it goes over and over and over and over. It's, it's continually giving itself away or continually not doing something depending on the description. So love is over and over and over and over and over patient. Love is kind again and again and again and again and again. Love does not envy others ever or ever or ever. Love is not arrogant. They're continual action verbs. If you note the things in verse 4, I think they describe the, the wrestling that we know inside of our soul, inside of the heart of man. They describe the wrestling that's within. Self-centered people within, in the cauldron of their own soul, wrestle with being impatient and unkind and envious of others and arrogant about their own gifts. That's where it happens is inside. So one commentator said, that verse 4 is almost explicitly describing what goes on in the heart of man. Love addresses my internal struggles, my, my rights, my time, my attitude, my despising their gifts, my envy if they have a place I want, my gifts that others don't notice that I have. It's, it's in the cauldron of the self. But then look in verse 5. Love is not just internal where we wrestle. Love is external in how we treat others. So love is not rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. That would mean like unforgiving, holding a grudge. I refuse to be restored to you. 
These are external actions, if you will, that flow out of the inside of the heart of man. Because let's be honest, some people just don't love us very well, do they? Some people provoke us, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes they poke us intentionally. Sometimes people are just plain evil, and what they do is just plain wrong. But Jesus said to love your enemies, to pray for them, so love can never justify irritable or rude or demanding reaction to someone else. Love doesn't keep a record of wrong that lives on days, weeks, months, years. Love trusts, the scriptures say in Matthew 18, that God has a pathway for those in conflict to humbly go to another, to take the log out of my own eye, to be in person, to humbly confront and convey, convey sin and hurt, to bring another along if needed. For the person on the other end who loves you to say, oh, here's why I did so, but it's inexcusable. I repent. I ask your forgiveness. And the only way we'll get there is if we both jointly believe in the love that God the Father has given to us to reconcile us to him, which means the whole incident deepens love. If that's foreign to us, verse 5 is a challenge, is it not? Verse 6, let's keep going. Love addresses not just the way I treat others and my struggle with those people, but I think love addresses our struggle with the culture of the world, broadly speaking. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Fallen people in a sinful world sadly and all too frequently rejoice at what feels like goodness, to them at least, when... It may, according to God's design and by his word's declaration, not be good at all. And, and, and so what Paul says is, love has no need to say to a friend or to the world or the culture around us, to a coworker. Love has no need to celebrate something as good because it feels good to another if the truth revealed to us in God's word is that it is not good. It is not okay. And don't forget that in a culture in which we live where people are saying, if you love me, you will always rejoice in what I rejoice in. No, I can't. Love doesn't do that because love never rejoices in wrongdoing, only in the truth. So let's both step outside of our feelings and look at the objective declaration of God's word as to what is worthy of rejoicing. But I think it goes even further, this great description. Verse 7, love addresses my struggle, my wrestling, maybe darkness we feel with relates God himself. So consider verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, love endures all things. Well, that's an odd description of love. But I want you to think with me of it this way. There is suffering in the world that is very unlovely, isn't there? There is sin there is death, there is oppression, there is abuse, there are biblical injustices, and there are circumstances outside of our control and certainly outside of our liking. What do we do with that? I think verse 7 is saying that one who rests on the love of God, even if there appears to be a delay in God's fulfillment of his promises, love from God and love for God bears all things, believes all things as having come to us under the authority of God. This this description of love is all comprehensive, isn't it? Even though it's comprehensible and it's rather clear. It's rather simple. So here's, here's what we need to do now. Between verse 7 and, and the rest of the chapter. Ready for this? Just go do it. Just go love like this. All of you. Christian, if, you, if you're a Christian and you profess Christ as Lord, then go do this. 
Always. Over and over and over, do the things that are described as positive here and never, ever, never, ever, ever, never do the things that you're called not to. That's our takeaway and we should close up in prayer. Form accountability groups, which we need, and let's go do this. But here's the challenge. How are you doing with this? Does this look like you? Does this sound like you? And here's the challenge. If it's not you, then we have to go back to verses 1 to 3. Then that means before God, you're noise or you're nothing. That's what the Bible says here. But we want to be loving, so maybe we should just put these verses on our church website and say, come join us. This is us. Put them on those little sticky things on our, on our living room wall and just say, this is what I'm supposed to do every day and I'm doing it. This is me. Of course we're supposed to do this. But listen to this quote. When applied to a local church, this becomes dynamite. It uncovers all the weaknesses, gaps, and failures and sins in any Christian community. These words cut us down to size and they humble us. Do you feel that humbling? Is this you? Husbands, can your wives say this about you? Children, can you say this about your father? Can your coworkers say this about you? Can your fellow church members and those who profess Christ with you say, this is how you love me and this is how I love you? The, the first reading of this letter in the Corinthian church surely would not have exuded the emotional feeling we often think that comes with these glorious verses. Right, so I want you to understand with me, I, I don't imagine that on the day of the very first ever reading of this letter, as the f- first church at Corinth was sitting there listening, that some young lady would have run up to her girlfriend afterwards and said, hey, did you hear the part two-thirds of the way through the letter? Low-key, I want that read at my wedding. I don't think that would have happened. No, what they would have heard was this love, this, this love, this is not me. This is not us. And so there's your outline point. This love, this is not you. Remember with me what Paul is doing. He's working his way through a letter, responding to needs. It's a very gifted church. Chapter one, verse seven said, you're loaded with spiritual gifts. But we're in the section in chapter 12 and chapter 14 that's about spiritual gifting. So they're loaded with spiritual gifts, but chapter 12, verse 1, and chapter 14, verse 1 bring a different word to the table, and it says that we're, they wanted to be spiritual persons, spiritually mature people with spiritual gifts. But as we looked at last week, they're nothing close to that. In fact, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, I wish I could write to you as a spiritually mature group of people. You're loaded with gifts, but I can't. You're children of the flesh, you're babies, you're infants. So, so in the last part of chapter 12, when he says, can I show you a still more excellent way? Here's what Paul is actually saying. The more excellent way looks nothing like you. That's what chapter 12, verse 31 should sound like. This is not you, not yet. This is the standard. This is the summary of the law of God. This is your calling. This is supposed to be your beauty, but this is not you. Let me give an example of how we know that's the case. These qualities in chapter, 
13 verses 4 to 7, have we heard them mentioned in other parts of the letter? Yes, we have. And almost to a single word, what role did they play earlier in the chapter, earlier in the letter? By way, they're, they're antithesis. Every time these things are brought up earlier in the letter, Paul's saying, see, you're not doing this. So for example, love is not arrogant. Chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I'm writing to you, I'm instructing you so that you might not be puffed up. Chapter 4, verse 18, some of you are pretty arrogant as though I'm not coming to you. Chapter 5, verse 2, it's been reported to me there's sexual immorality among you and you are arrogant about it. So when we come to chapter 13 and it says love is not arrogant, we get cozy and we want to have that influence us, but you know what it sounded like to the Corinthians? Love is not like you. That's the tone of chapter 13 in its original context. Another example, love does not insist on its own way. Well, in chapter 10, verse 24, in that whole dialogue about what do we do about food sacrifice to idols, because we know idols are nothing, so we should be able to eat whatever we want. In chapter 10, verse 24, Paul says, let no one seek their own good. Seek the good of the, the brother or sister who's weaker in their faith than you. Yet some of you are all about your own rights and your own good, which is something love does not do. 1 Corinthians 13 is not this placid, gorgeous treatise on love. It's a corrective in its original context. It's a plea to a church that has not yet understand, understood what it, what it looks like to be mature. See, the church at Corinth thought it looked like maturity if they had prestige in their city, if they had wealth and resources, if they had gifts that others needed them to bring to the table. They felt mature. They were honored as such. Paul says, no, this is what maturity looks like. And it does not look like you. Maturity does not look like you, Jim. Love does not look much like you, Jim. Not yet. Not fully. Well, who does this love look like then? If it doesn't look like us. It looks like him. It looks like Jesus. I read multiple places this week that these four verses, verse four to seven, perfectly describe the character of Jesus himself and of nobody else. The way you can test that, it becomes very clear if you substitute the name Jesus wherever the word love is in the chapter. And you can't substitute your own name there or you'll see the point. Jesus is, was patient and kind. Jesus did not envy or boast. He was not arrogant or rude. He did not insist on his own way. He was not irritable or resentful. He did not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoice with the truth. Jesus bore all things, believed all things from the Father, hoped all things, and Jesus endured all things all the way to the end of his own cross. Jesus is love. Jesus is him. Romans 5.8 summarizes all the gospel. For God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus came, he lived, he suffered and died to make visible this kind of love among a people who would not know it apart from that. But here's the crux of the matter. If love was why Jesus came, 
And if Jesus is love, as is described in this text, but then he died, then love ends. I need you to really, I've been thinking about this all week. I need you to understand that with me. If this is him and he is love and he lived and he suffered and he loved and he died, but he died, then love ends. Then this standard that we chase after, we can never know it. It's just a standard. If he was love and he died and he did not rise from the dead, love ends. But love never ends. You see that? Verse 8. Love never ends. Love is never not. This whole chapter begs the resurrection. There's no other way to understand it because death makes everything stop. Everything. The minutia of our calendar stops. Even harshness and anger and oppression and bad stuff, it stops with death from that particular individual. But how about good things from one? How about true love? Death makes everything stop unless the resurrection is true. And we read here in verse 8 that love never ends because love is from God and God is eternal. And so guess what? Maybe this is news for you. Love is eternal because love is God and God never had a beginning and God will never have an end. So when you read in verse 8 that love never ends, love never started. Let me show you where we know that from Scripture. In John 17, Jesus is about to, to suffer the cross and he's going to then be resurrected and go to, back to the Father. Here's what he says in that high priestly prayer. He says, Father, the glory that you've given to me, I've given to them that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and you've loved them as you have loved me. Then he keeps going. He says, Father, I desire that they whom you've given me may be with me where I am. Now he's talking about eternity. I want them to be with me where I am and I want them to see the glory that you've given to me because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. And then he goes on and he ends his prayer saying, I want this forever love to be in them just as I am in them. John 17 is just... But consider the 1 Corinthians 13 connection here. Love never had a beginning because it always existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when Jesus prays and says, I want them to know what I've always known, then if we're going to talk about biblical love, the resurrection is at the center of it because it can never end. Prophecies will end. Paul says that. Tongues will end. Knowledge will end. In, in the sense of the search for it will be over. But one day, all the things we know in part because we read the scriptures and we believed with faith that we could only partially know. Or we heard someone preach on it and we began to be reminded of it because we'd forgotten. That's just a partial knowledge. We just go, we do this dance of, of, of slightly knowing, of increasing knowing. But scripture here says that one day we will know in full. It'll be like a child who grows up out of their innocence or out of the ignorance that is bliss to them into maturity and they see things very differently than they thought. The text uses that illustration to say one day when we grow up, we will know the eternal love that's always been there. 
Love is him. He was resurrected. We will be resurrected with him. And that will be when the perfect comes. That will be when everything is complete. I was singing the power of the cross with you earlier. I am so tired of the partial. I can use it in a little children's message. I'm tired of the partial. I'm tired of the partial in your life. When I see it and I know that there may be some things you are going through that you will never see completion of. I know that you wrestle with that same pain. This chapter is cruel if there is no resurrection. The partial will pass away. The perfect will come. And you know what it says when it says the perfect comes? Paul's own words in, in 1 Corinthians 13, then we will see, not like in a faint, dim mirror where everything's contorted, then we will see face to face. Whose face? I propose you a series of faces. It's the perfect face of our risen Lord. It's the face of the Father, and it's the face of all others who've been made complete and righteous in his sight because we will all know the perfect. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus, there is no love to hope in. Verse 13, now faith, hope, and love abide. The greatest of these is love. Well, that's interesting. He says faith, hope, and love all last forever. Well, how is that the case? Well, faith purely means depending and trusting on, in God. So we will always, even when we're with him face to face, be dependent and trusting that he is who he said he would be. Hope is God's definition of himself. He describes himself in the scripture as the God of all hope. What do we hope in? That he will be who he said he is and that he will unconditionally love us. Even in this text, the beauty of unconditional love is, is made plain, isn't it? When in verse 12, Paul says, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Should anybody love you if you are fully known for all that you are in your selfishness and in your sin? Is there any hope for you if you are truly fully known? Are you lovely by your own estimation and you don't even know the full extent of your dark heart that's been rescued by God in the gospel? The unconditional forever love is in the center of this text because the resurrection is true. Let me read to you from 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this is the love of God that was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath bearer of our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear. We're going to move into worshipful response and celebration. The Lord's Supper, Thanksgiving. But as you come forward to take the Lord's Supper, can I implore you to rebuke any fear you have in you? That God doesn't receive you. If you've professed faith in Jesus and you've confessed your sin, rebuke any fear in yourself that says, I'm not worthy. No, he fully knows you. But you don't necessarily fully grasp the nature of his love until you see him face to face. So trust him now. 
We fear all sorts of things. We fear death. We fear guilt and judgment. We fear shame from others. We fear relationships not being restored. We fear aloneness. We fear depression. We fear physical pain. The Bible says perfect love drives out all fear. Because perfect love is embodied for us in the resurrection of Jesus. And we will live forever and ever and ever with everything being fully made right. So what is there to fear now? I have a sad feeling that Christians in this day and age are going to remain stressed because culture doesn't profess what we profess. But my sad feeling is that Christians will be somehow afraid that we're losing ground or that the world around us is going to change. Can I ask you to join me as we take the Lord's Supper to believe that perfect love drives out all fear? Let's not be afraid of anything, of any sin being exposed, of any change in the world around us, of a future we can't control. Because love has happened in the person of Jesus. And if he died and stayed dead, then we have a whole lot to be afraid of. We have a standard we can't meet and we have people that are mean but he rose from the dead that we would know his love forever. So what is there to be afraid of now? Christ is risen. Father, would you help us to worship you as our resurrection and life, your son as our resurrection and life. And we thank you for receiving us in the gospel. We ask that you'd forgive us for faulty love that looks nothing like our Savior. We ask that you'd help us to believe that we can participate in your love now because love is alive. He rose from the grave and we will know it forever. So would you bury all shame and all guilt and all fear among us this day on this Easter celebration? Jesus, we praise you as the resurrected Lord. In your name we pray, amen.